Good morning, church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with everyone. Uh, If you're new here, again, we want to welcome you. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad you could be with us today. Uh, If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5 uh, for just a moment, actually. Uh, We will be doing something a little different. I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 5, and then I'm going to try to catch you up from chapters 1 through 4. So pray for me. Uh, But we're going to preach four and a half chapters in 35 minutes, the Lord willing. Uh, We'll do the best we can. Uh, But as you're turning there, you you may have heard us mention it, uh, the New Testament 90 days. We're trying to uh, encourage everyone to join in with us if you can. If you didn't get a chance to be here last week to hear about that, you can grab one of these bookmarks on your way out or go to our uh, website and you can find the... uh, digital version of that. You can listen to it online and read it online on our website. Okay, so we would love for you to read with us this year. Uh, 90 days through the whole New Testament takes about 15 minutes a day. Uh, We would love for you to be a part of it. All right, so 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This, Lord willing, will give us just kind of a ending, and then we're going to pick up and see kind of how did we get to this place, okay? Hear the reading of God's word. Actually, let's pause for a moment. I want to invite you to just pause for a moment in silence with me as we prepare our hearts to receive his word. Let's pause. Hear the reading of God's word. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today. The kingdom marks. The kingdom marks. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us in it. God, we pray you would open up our hearts to receive from you all that your spirit would want to speak to us and transform in us today. We ask that you would do it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you're much like me, but I don't know much about art. I, I don't know a lot about art and all the you know, art museums, although I like going to art museums because they're air-conditioned. And in Florida, if you can find something fun to do in the air conditioning, it's a win, right? But you may, even if you don't know much about art like me, you, you may have been able to recognize a painting called The Starry Night. It's, it's a very distinct, famous painting by uh, the painter Vincent van Gogh, and maybe you've seen it with its distinct bold colors and swirly skies and the contrast in light. You, you've probably seen it at some point. And it has this distinct characteristic of Vincent van Gogh's style that, that made his, his contribution to art. And, and actually, a few years ago, there were people who made a documentary about his life. 
And uh, it, it was a fascinating documentary, kind of covering his, covering his life. But the way they did it was even more intriguing. It was the first film ever released in history that was fully painted. Fully painted. They hired 100 artists to paint, get this, 65,000 oil-on-canvas paintings that then were turned into the motion picture. 65,000 paintings, and they did all the paintings in his distinct style so that you could look at it, and their goal was for you to look at it and say, that's a Van Gogh. That They wanted everyone who watched the film to be able to see in the film, that is Vincent Van Gogh's style. That is what made him distinct. That is what made him unique. That was his contribution to this thing called art. Now, all of us have about us and, and in our worlds, we, we have distinctives about us, right? There, there's things that make you, you. And, and the question I want to ask today is, what is distinct about God's kingdom? What are the marks that when you, when you see God's kingdom, when you find God's kingdom, you look at it and you say, that's God's kingdom, that right there has its distinctive marks. That, that right there is the thing you can tell. That, that makes it God's kingdom. What are those things? See, if you go back generations in our, in our Western culture, there was a lot of confusion about this. There was you know, a, a generation uh, where, where uh, there was conflation between what the culture was and what the kingdom was. Right? And so there was an assumption that because the majority of people in the West were professing Christians, that meant that everything in the culture must be Christian. And so there was just an assumption that the values of the culture must be kingdom values, and they weren't. Right? There was an assumption that if the culture valued success and power and, and the American dream and all these things that, that the culture had valued, then that must be what the kingdom valued. But it wasn't. There, there was this sense that just because it was in the culture doesn't mean it's in the kingdom. In fact, uh, you could look at it and you say, no, it wasn't. Because that so-called Christian culture, that assumption was also the same culture that approved of slavery and approved of the mistreatment of women and approved of Jim Crow. And, and so you can go back and say, well, maybe there's a distinction between the kingdom and the culture. But now the West has changed. And in the last 50 to 75 years, lots of things have changed. And as our culture becomes more and more obviously post-Christian, there's people who are saying there are different assumptions now. Author Mark Sayers, he has a great way of putting this. He says, in our modern culture today, we have people who want the kingdom without the Christ. We want the kingdom without the king. In other words, there's something deep within us, even though our culture continues to become more and more post-Christian, there's something within us that still wants his kingdom. There's something that, that longs for it because we're made in his image, and so we want his kingdom, but now there's even more confusion because we don't even know what it is. What does it mean to have the kingdom of God if we're not even sure there's a king? There, there's just a lot of confusion now. How, how do we make sense of what is happening in our world? I would say it's even more pertinent that we ask the question, what are the marks of his kingdom? What makes his kingdom different than all the kingdoms of the world? What is it about God's kingdom? 
And so we're starting a new series today through the book of 2 Samuel. And last fall, if you were with us, we walked through the first book of Samuel. And now we're coming into the second half, and it's all about David's life. And so I want to catch you up if, if you weren't with us, or maybe you forget kind of what, what we were talking about. Uh, but in 1 Samuel, we're introduced to the situation in Israel where they had, uh, had God as their king for, for generations, and now they're discontent. They are wanting, just like the nations around them, to have a king like the nations. And so God gives them their request. He says, okay, if you want a king and you don't want me to be a king, here you go. And you're going to get what you ask for. And so you get King Saul. And Saul becomes their king. And Saul looks like a king. He acts like a king. He's tall and handsome and powerful. And yet with all his strength, he miserably fails. Right? And then when, when he fails, God steps in and he says, look... Here's what I'm going to do. You got your king, now I'm going to get my king. And I'm going to establish a new kingdom under David. And David will be the king. But there's this gap, this overlap where Saul is still king, but David's been anointed king. And, and they're kind of back and forth through all of 1 Samuel. And Saul is trying to kill David. David's on the run from Saul. It's chaos, right? And then Saul dies. And now it gets even worse. And now we enter into 2 Samuel, and there's this, this transition period. It's a transition of power, and it gets really messy. And that's what chapters 1 through 4 are. And I, and I want us to look at that today. I'm going to try to give you an overview the best I can. But what you see in these first four chapters is you start to see these distinctives of God's kingdom. You start to see what's different about Saul and the kingdoms of this world and what's different about David and God's kingdom as God is bringing David into his kingship. And so it's really a tale of two kingdoms, and there's surprising marks, surprising marks. So that's what I want to look at today. We're going to look at three surprising marks. The first one is grief. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first point is marked by grief. Now, let's look back at chapter one, okay? Follow with me. In chapter one, Saul and Jonathan, his son, have been killed in battle. Okay, and Saul and Jonathan are out battling against the Philistines. They die in battle, but David doesn't know about it because David's off fighting in a different battle with the Amalekites. And so while David is settling down after his battle, there's a young Amalekite who comes to him running as hard as he can, coming from Saul's camp, and uh, he, he has this message for David. And he falls down at David's feet, and he, he, uh, his, his, torn, his clothes are all torn, he's all dirty, he looks like he's been through a war, and he says to David, I have news for you, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And David kind of pauses for a moment, he's panicking, he's, he's not ready to receive this word, and so he's suspicious, and he says, how do you know he's dead? How do you even know this is true? And the Amalekite says, because I was there. I was at the battlefield. I saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I stumbled upon King Saul while he was fatally wounded. And then he tells a little bit of a story. He says this. Uh, let me find it. In, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, uh, that, that Saul said to the Amalekite. He says, this is what Saul told me. Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, or stood beside him, and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. 
In other words, I know he's dead because I killed him myself. Now, it's at this point in the story that the reader knows more than David knows. Because the close reader who read 1 Samuel in the last chapter, that's when we learn about Saul's death. And what we learn in 1 Samuel from the narrator's perspective is Saul definitely was in battle. Saul definitely was wounded. But how it ended is very different than what the Amalekite said. Saul wasn't killed at the hand of an Amalekite. Saul was killed because he decided to fall on his sword. And the Amalekite wasn't there at all. In other words... He was lying. And just like every good liar, it was convincing. It was very convincing. In fact, David, as far as we know, never found out that he was lying. David only knows what the Amalekite has told him. And so the question is, why did he lie? Why did this Amalekite lie to David about Saul's death? Here's why. Because he wanted to be David's hero. He wanted to be David's hero Because he assumed that David was just like every other aspiring king, that if you killed his enemy for him, he would celebrate you. He assumed that if you came and destroyed by any means possible the one that was against him, because remember, Saul was trying to kill David, Saul was against David. If I kill Saul, then David's going to love me, and I'm going to get all the glory in his kingdom. And David's response could not be more surprising In summary, this is my paraphrase, David said, you did what? You did what? You killed the king of Israel? What were you thinking? How are you not afraid to touch the Lord's anointing is what he said. How could you do this? You thought this was good news? You were bringing to me good news? This is terrible. And then David goes on to grieve rather than gloat over his enemy. It says in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And it goes on to recount that, you know, David, he wrote many of the Psalms. David was a songwriter, so David writes a song of lament over this occasion. And it goes on to recount this lamentation, and, and it says how David shared his grief, and David was overwhelmed with sadness. And, and you might expect it for Jonathan. Right? Because Jonathan, if you know the story, Jonathan was David's best friend. You, you would expect his grief over him, but Saul? Really? David, you're going to grieve over your enemy's death? You're going to grieve over the defeat of the one who's been after you for 15 years? And not only does he grieve, he leads all of Israel to grieve Saul's death. And in verse 24, it says, or this is what David says, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. This is a distinctive mark right here. It surprises everybody, but it's his kingdom. See, God's kingdom, listen to me, God's kingdom grieves over every loss. God's kingdom grieves over every loss. See, in a culture of pretending, we're pressured to ignore our losses, We're pressured to to just pretend like everything is fine. Everything's okay. What what problems are you talking about? We're we're pressured to ignore our feelings of sadness and grief and loss and pain and difficulty. We're, We're pressured to just pretend like everything is fine. And so the unspoken goal is really to dehumanize ourselves. 
Act like a machine. Act like nothing affects you. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe this past year, 2023, was a really, really difficult year. Maybe it was hard for you in your family or in your finances or with your kids, whatever it may be, but there, there was loss, there was pain, there was difficulty, and you haven't given yourself permission yet to grieve because there's so much pressure to pretend. And listen, I want to tell you this morning, grief is giving yourself permission to be human, to be human, because as humans made in the image of God, we are made in the image of a God who grieves. We are made in the image of a God who, who is sad, who, who, who feels loss, who feels grief, who feels these things that we feel. And so he's saying to be made in the image of God is to grieve. So rather than feeling shame if we express grief, we should be able to say with confidence, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom right there. When I'm grieving, when I'm, when I'm being honest about where I really am, that's the kingdom. But also, in a culture of despair, we're told to sit in our losses. In other words, a wise counselor once told me, he said, the, the difference between despair and, and grief is this. You ready? He said, despair sits and grief moves. That has stuck with me for months now. I've just been meditating on that. Despair sits and grief moves. What he means by that is despair is this sense of, yeah, I feel my feelings. Yeah, I'm aware of my sadness and my anger and my pain and my loss, but I just kind of sit there with it. I don't do anything with it. I get stuck in it because I don't really have anywhere to go with it. But grief is actually very different. Notice in David, David has a, a specific kind of grief. He laments. And lament is taking your pain toward God. You're, you're moving your pain, your loss, your grief toward God. You're taking it to him and saying, God, I don't know what to do with this. I am angry. I am frustrated. I'm confused. I, I don't know how this person left me when they said they would love me. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this financial travesty I'm in. I don't know how to get out of this depression and despair. God, I don't know what to do with it, but I'm bringing it to you. That's lament. Lament is saying, I'm not going to sit here with it by myself. I'm going to move with it somewhere. I feel it. I know it. I acknowledge it, but I'm going somewhere with it, right? And that it makes sense in a godless culture that becomes more and more post-Christian that we would only despair and not actually grieve because there's nowhere to take your pain. There, there, there is no God, but, but what we believe as Christians is, is lament is taking it to him. And if there is a God, and there really is, you can take him everything. You can take him everything. You hear that? But here's what's surprising to me. Not just any grief. Notice what he grieves over. Most shocking of all, this is, this is incredible. David grieves over the loss of his enemy. I mean, I don't, I don't think you get that. In a culture of competition, what we are told is you gloat over your enemy's losses. You don't grieve them. Right? We, we, we celebrate the fall of our coworkers that we can't stand. We rejoice over the opposite political, political party, whatever it is, making a fool of themselves. We delight in the pain of those who have caused pain in our life, but not so in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, it's different. In God's kingdom, you grieve over your enemy's loss. You grieve. Do you hear that? 
In other words, if we don't allow ourselves to grieve, in a sense, we are dehumanizing ourselves. But if we gloat over the losses of our enemies, we're dehumanizing them. We're dehumanizing them. Let me tell you, your worst enemy is an image bearer of God. The person who's caused you the most pain in your life bears the image of your Savior. Think about that. This is, this is what he's saying. This is the kind of distinctive grief, a kind of distinctive mark of the kingdom that, that no one else even has a category for, that you would grieve over people who've caused you deepest pain. And when you find that happening in your life, you can say with pure confidence, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom right there. So I got to keep moving. But the kingdom of God, the first mark is grief. The second is gentleness. It's gentleness. And this is the second point, marked by gentleness. So news spreads that Saul and his, his uh, kingdom is over. He, he's died. And so the tribe of Judah, uh, they, they go to, to David and they say, hey, we want you to be our king. And so immediately they anoint David king. But the other 11 tribes, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want David to be our king. And so they're not on board. They're not excited about it. In fact, there's a guy named Abner who was the army commander of Saul's army who says, this is my opportunity. And so he comes in, and in chapter 2, uh, verse 8, listen to what he, what he does. It says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to uh, Mahanaim, and he, set, or he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Now get this, Abner, remember, he's the, he's the king's uh, army commander, but he's also a political opportunist. He realizes that, hey, if David's going to be king, that means I don't have a job. Because David already had a, a commander of his army. His name is Joab. We'll meet him in a second. And so Abner realizes, I may lose my job and I may even lose my life. And so he says, I, I got to find a way out of this. So he grabs one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and he says, all right, you're going to be king. And he anoints him king just out of the blue. He says, you're, you're going to be the king. And so we don't even know what Ishbosheth wanted or what he just is kind of a pawn in Abner's plan. And so Abner says, I'm going to do this. And when he does it, civil war breaks out. And chapter two is full of horrific violence and just senseless fighting, lots of death. It's, it's terrible between Judah and Israel, back and forth, people dying left and right. And as they're fighting, as they're fighting, Israel starts to win the war. And so Abner retreats. Abner panics and he runs. And so Joab, the other commander of the army of, of Judah, he chases after Abner, but he can't keep up. But Joab's brother, Abishai, is fast. And so he catches up to him. And Abner looks at him and he says, you better back off because if you don't back off, I'm going to kill you. And he doesn't listen. So Abner kills him. Now, I tell you that because it's going to come up later. But this is what happens. Abner now runs back to his safety and he realizes this isn't going to work. And in a strange turn of events, Abner decides, I'm going to leave behind Israel, and I'm going to go to David's side. Did I mention he's a political opportunist? He, he doesn't have any loyalties. He, he just wants to take care of Abner. That's all he cares about. And so he goes over to David's house, and he's trying to uh, negotiate a deal with David. And Joab hears that Abner's there. And so by the time Joab gets there, 
to try to do something about it. David had already let him go in peace. David had already basically forgiven him, shown him mercy, treated him like he was one of them. And when Joab finds out that David treats him like that, listen to what Joab says. This is chapter 3, verse 24. He says to David, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? In other words, this guy killed my brother. This guy started a civil war with us. This guy's trying to take out all of our people. And you forgave him? You showed him mercy? You sent him home on his way? What is this? And so Joab decides to take it into his own hands. He chases down Abner and murders him. It's brutal. This is a dark period in Israel's history. David was merciful. Joab was merciless. And again, David grieves in chapter 3. Surprisingly, in in verse 38, listen to what he says. Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Here it is. And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, which is Joab, are more severe than I. More severe than I. David starts to compare himself as he's reflecting. He's realizing the way God has called me to live is different than the way everyone around me is living. I'm looking at Joab and I'm thinking, how am I gentle when I'm the one who's actually the king and you are severe? The the Hebrew there is, is harsh. You are harsh. Joab assumes the world's use of strength. Crush people. Crush people. But there's a different way. There's a distinct way in God's kingdom. See, God's kingdom shows strength through gentleness. It's through gentleness. In a culture of harshness, gentleness is often seen as weakness. It's seen as weakness. In the world's kingdom, cruelty is king, right? If you ever seen that show, Cobra Kai, in the words of Cobra Kai, strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Right, that, that, that could summarize the, the culture's view of how to use power. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. The idea is, how can I show to one person mercy? Because what that opens me up to now is now I'm vulnerable to all the other people in my life who may need mercy. And so rather than be merciful to anyone, I'm going to be harsh to everyone. I'm going to return their evil for more evil. And so what it's created is this cancel culture, right? Wherever you, wherever you find yourself in the culture, it, the, everyone's getting canceled. We can't show mercy to anybody. There, there's, it's just, you're done. We're cutting you off. We're out of here because there is no conversation. There is no mercy. There is no forgiveness. You're done. Can't be gentle. Can't be patient. Can't be tender. One of our greatest fears in our culture, I believe, is weakness. We're afraid to be weak. We're afraid. But listen, gentleness isn't weakness. It's just like meekness. It is the strength under control. And so David's reflecting. He's saying, he's saying, I'm king. I'm the one who actually has power, and yet I'm gentle. And you who don't have power, you, you are trying to grasp at power by being cruel and harsh. In other words, what he's saying is cruelty is really a grasp for power by those who don't have it. Those who don't have it. And the word that David uses for Joab's severity, it comes from agriculture. It's the word that they would use to describe a harsh yoke that you would put on an animal. 
And if you remember Jesus' teaching about the yoke, he, Jesus was talking about this contrast between his heart and the heart of others. And Jesus in Matthew 11, which we actually read this week in our New Testament reading, Matthew 11 says this from Jesus' mouth. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here it is. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, a, a yoke was a power tool. A yoke was a way to control a powerful animal. And, and Jesus is saying, I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. I have all the power in all the universe. I don't need to grasp for anything. I don't need to try to control anybody. And how I use my power is this. Gentle, tender, kind. He, he says easy and light. Right? He's saying, I have all the power you can imagine, and yet here's how I express my heart. The very heart of God, it's tender. It's unlike any other heart. See, some of us need to hear that this morning. You need to hear that God's heart is tender towards you. It's tender towards you. Because some of us in this room, you, you've come in here with, with baggage. You, you've come in here with, with understandings about God that are shaped more by your history than by the Word of God. And, so, and that makes sense. All of us have baggage. All of us come to the Scriptures with our own issues. And, and you've had harsh people in your life who now you, you look at God and you think God must be like that harsh person. He must be like that cruel person. He must treat me the way they treat me because that's how people interact. And I want you to hear this morning, God isn't like that. His kingdom is unlike the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is tender, it's gentle, it's easy, it's light. Do you hear that? There's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of this is what I'm inviting you into is to experience my heart. He's eager to show mercy. He's eager to show gentleness with your pain. He's eager to show kindness with your failure. He's eager to show tenderness with your sin. With all power in his hands, rather than grasp power, he says, I want to give to you. I want to give to you. So that's gentleness. That's the kingdom. So the first two marks, grief. Second is gentleness. The last is gospel. This is the third, marked by gospel. So after Abner is murdered... Ishbosheth, who was made the king of Israel, he starts to panic because he's now lost his army general. And so he doesn't know how he's going to protect himself. He doesn't know how he's going to continue to fight this war. And so he thinks the threats are outside of him. But what actually happens is the greatest threat is in his own house. There's these two men named Bana and Rechab who start to plot his murder. And so they plot and find a way to sneak into his room while he's taking a nap. And while he's taking a nap, asleep in his bed, they sneak in with a knife and stab him in the stomach. And then after they kill him, it gets gruesome. They cut off his head and take it to David. Well, did I tell you, this is a dark point in their history. And as they carry his head to David, they're thinking David's going to celebrate this. David's going to rejoice. He's going to promote us in his kingdom. This, this is going to be a great day. They thought, just like the Amalekite, David is going to gloat over the fall of his enemies. And what's really fascinating is, as, as you read these four chapters, these are really two stories that are telling the same story. It's a bookend in this section. It's the author, the, the narrator, is trying to get you to see the major point in these four chapters is this. There is a distinction between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. And it's the same story again. And just like the story with the Amalekite, 
David shocks everyone. In verse 9, chapter 4, David says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, speaking of the Amalekite, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Now here's David, who goes on in verse 11 to rebuke this man, or these two men, for killing this innocent uh, king, Ishbosheth. And he says to them, You thought you were bringing good news. You thought, just like the Amalekite, this was gospel for me. But you got the gospel wrong. You got the gospel wrong. You got it backwards. You think the gospel is about destroying enemies. And this is the gospel it's about blessing your enemies. You had it completely backwards. You thought the gospel was kill your enemies, but the gospel really is die for your enemies. And so here's what it, what it means. God's kingdom redeems enemies by dying for enemies. This is the gospel. This is the true gospel, not some twisted backwards gospel. It's the gospel that Jesus ultimately comes to show us. Jesus comes as the true and better David. See, David hinted at this kingdom. He hinted at this gospel with his life, but ultimately David failed. And you'll see throughout all of 2 Samuel, David has plenty of failures, but David at this moment is hinting towards one who would come. He's hinting towards the promised son of David, Jesus, who lives these marks perfectly. Jesus comes not avoiding grief, but as the scripture describes, he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He wept over losing his friend Lazarus. He wept over his rejection by Jerusalem. He wept, as Hebrew 5 says, with loud cries and tears. Jesus embodied this kingdom grief because he was the true and better king we've longed for. His gentle and lowly heart, God's own heart, bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? He carried our sorrows to that cross on Calvary. The sorrows that we've carried too long, the sorrows we've ignored and denied, the sorrows we've had no cure to heal, He carried for you and me. And rather than crush His enemies in revenge, Jesus carries our sorrows and sins to the cross to be crushed in redemption, he was struck dead as the truly innocent. He endured in the harshness of humanity and the wrath of eternity. He did what no kingdom of this world would ever do. He took the place of his enemies for us. See, the gospel of the kingdom is there's a king that's unlike any other king. There's a king that's come in a way that no other king would come. This king invites us to himself. This king is full of mercy and tenderness. This king is marked by his hands and feet with nails proof that no one else compares. See, when we see Jesus, we can say with confidence, that's the kingdom. There's the kingdom right there. This king is different than any other king we've known. And so the question this morning is, will you receive this king and his kingdom? Will you receive a way of life that's distinct and different than any other kingdom in this world? And just like the Amalekite, God invites us to himself, but rather than fall down and lie to God, what he invites us to do is tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth that I, I want my own kingdom. I, I've wanted to live my own life. I wanted to live in my own ways. I, I didn't want God to rule and reign over me. I didn't want any kind of distinctive way. I just wanted to kind of blend in and live my life. But now, God, I surrender. I surrender myself to you, and I, I want your kingdom to make me different. I want your kingdom of grace and mercy and tenderness and what you've done for me in Jesus. I want it to transform me into someone who's distinct. And by your grace, God, I'm asking you to change me. 
Do you hear that? It's just telling the truth. That, that's what repentance and faith is. It's telling the truth that this is who I really am. And God, this is who you really are. I need you. I need you to change me. And by your grace, Lord, make me new. He's inviting us to surrender to that kind of kingdom because he's that kind of king. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we are grateful, so grateful that your kingship is different than anything else we've known. We're grateful that you're not a selfish king. You're not a greedy king. You're not a grasping king. You're not one who's full of harshness and hatred. You're not seeking revenge. But Lord Jesus, you've come to us to save your enemies, to love the tax collector and the prostitute and the Pharisee and the scribes and everyone who was against you. You've come for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would uh, do that even today. Call us towards yourself. Bring your kingdom from heaven to earth right here in our hearts. Lord, we invite you in. We ask that you would help us with the grace that you've given to tell the truth about who we are, to tell the truth of what we've desired that we shouldn't desire, to tell the truth about how we need your help. We need your saving grace. And Lord, in that truth-telling, may you transform us. We pray in Christ's name.